You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. Uh, Today we're going to talk about franchising. And we're going right to one of the big experts uh, in the franchising field, uh, Dan Rowe, who's a founder and CEO of FranSmart. And uh, he's a guy behind uh, some guys' franchises you may have heard about and love, um, as do I, uh, Five Guys and the Halal Guys. Um, So welcome, Dan. So tell me a little bit about your background, kind of what FranSmart does and, you know, how you help franchises grow. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so my background, I was uh, uh, never went to college. Uh, I used to cook and wash dishes in restaurants. And I became a franchisee of a bagel bakery chain at like 23 years old. The company had six, six or so locations in D.C. And I bought the franchise rights with my buddy at, for Denver, Colorado. And we were on our own. We didn't really know any better, but we were we were on our own. 1500 miles away and quite successful uh, with our store. So we, we, we actually helped the bagel bakery chain. Um, all their locations were in Washington, DC. We proved the concept worked in Denver, helped them grow to 200 units. And then um, we sold the company. When I was in Denver, one of my bagel bakery chains was right across from the original Chipotle. So I saw that was my second cha- uh, chain that I saw when it was just a baby. But um, we tried to work with Chipotle and they weren't interested. So another company in Colorado copied them called um, Qdoba. And so we, we became partners in Qdoba and we did their franchise development. And then that really, after we grew Qdoba from one unit to, you know, I think we sold the first few hundred and then sold to Jack in the Box. Um, but instead of going one concept at a time, in 2000, we started FranSmart really with the idea of being more or less an incubator, but it was it was this idea that instead of growing one company at a time, we could grow a portfolio of restaurant concepts at the same time. So FranSmart is a franchise development company. We're we're you know we're the outsourced franchise arm for all of our brands. We've sold over five thousand franchises around the world, uh, including brands that were based in Europe. Uh, but we've sold you know tons of franchises. We specialize in selling large multi-unit franchises. Um, to mainly to experience groups that are looking for non-competitive expansion uh, vehicles or to high net worth individuals that we pair up with the right operating team so that they can be successful. What was it about franchising that made you want to build a whole career around it? Um, it's, you know, it's just an, it's the epitome of predictability. It's franchising is a business of systems and processes and procedures. And it's really easy to find in any franchise system, the best franchisees and the worst franchisees. And if you spend time with them, it's really easy to see what the successful people do day in and day out that the unsuccessful people just aren't doing. And so, you know, you've got a business that's already proven. Uh, you've got, you know, a franchisor whose job it is to keep thinking of the next thing. And then your franchisees just have to execute. But I read this book early on in my career called the richest man in Babylon. And the book basically was written for real estate, but it's the same kind of ideas that you invest in something that generates cash, use that cash to reinvest in more things that make cash and then so on and so on. 
And it creates this compounded, like a snowball effect of compounding returns. And in franchising, I've just seen hundreds and hundreds of franchisees that start off with, you know, a little bit of money. They want to be self-employed. They want to be financially independent and they get into the business. And the ones that do it right are able to scale and scale and scale and scale, taking their initial investment plowing back the profit to get those uh, results. Um, and I just find it fascinating. And it's, but like I said, it's super predictable. Um, it's easy. I like to feed people. I mean, our business is mainly about feeding people. Um, yeah. So I, it's, I think it's a fantastic business. I'm, I'm, I'm filled with, you know, everyone I know is an entrepreneur from the brands that are trying to grow to the franchisees, to most of our vendors, you know, they're all, it's, it's a, it's a pretty neat ecosystem of entrepreneurs and I just enjoy the crowd. So what are some of those best things that franchises do? And then what are some of the worst? Well, you know, the, the best things are that franchisees follow the system, right? So if you've got a system and it's successful and you've got successful franchisees doing it, you just emulate the most successful franchisees and you find that more often than not, they're following the playbook, the brand's playbook. Um, they're not cutting corners. They are thinking about it like it's an investment. They're not thinking about it like it's a lifestyle brand. Very important distinction. But, you know, someone who's really thinking about it like an investment, they're tracking returns and they're reinvesting free cash to track their returns on the reinvested cash. And they're really kind of building something small into something big that that they can sell. And the least successful franchisees I find cut corners um, and tend to keep, tend to want to do things their own way. Like even though there's a successful way, they just keep tending to do it a different way. And so it fascinates me where a franchisee will sign up for a 10 unit territory and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to secure a territory. They pay, you know, half million or a million dollars to build the first unit, depending what the concept is. But then when it comes time to hiring their team, they cut corners, right? They're spending, committing millions of dollars in something, and they're likely to spend 10000 too little versus 10000 more to hire just the right, you know, director of ops and the right manager and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's pretty easy that, you know, the franchisees that are successful, you just stick to that formula and you just keep doing it over and over and over again. Can you just visit a restaurant and know that the concept is going to have legs? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I can, I get it wrong a lot too. Like I'm in Austin right now looking at concepts and, um, uh, you know, a lot of times I, I look at a concept, not for what it is, but what I think I can do with it. So like in the case of halal guys, they were street carts. They only had street carts. And so I wasn't going to grow a chain of street carts, but I knew that guys, gosh, there's a billion and a half Muslims. And I couldn't think of a single Muslim brand. I couldn't think of a single Muslim actor, singer, apparel company, tech company, food brand, nothing. I couldn't think of anything, a grocery store or restaurants. And it just, to me, seemed like this huge puzzle that was just waiting to be solved. And so when I approached the halal guys, I said, you know, this thing, this is, food's delicious. People are lining up, whether it's boiling hot in New York City or really cold New York City, they line up for this food. And there's tons of competitors or knockoffs, and they don't have nearly the crowds. And so I said, there's really something here. There's like a little secret sauce going on here that um, I think that this thing could, could grow around the country. And, you know, but 
just because I say that and just because the brand agrees to do that doesn't mean that I'm right. And it also doesn't mean that all sides are going to do the right thing all along the way, because, you know, it's like, look at a lot of these celebrity chefs, you know, celebrity chefs went out and created a bunch of chains and they're all dead. You know, they've lost so much money, closed independent restaurants and chain restaurants. And it's like, there's, you know, these are people that are amazing at making food taste good. They have infinite amounts of marketability and buzz to draw attention to the concepts and they still can't make a go of it. So, you know, you just, you just never know. And so we have, I mean, we have our own, we've developed over the years, over 30 years, we, we have a very clean list of our attributes of the ideal brand, but, um, you just, you know, that sort of, uh, that we can map that to the snapshot of that brand at that moment in time, when I'm taking a look at it, you don't really know how the owners will behave over time. So money does weird things to people, really weird things to people. And so, you know, the the founders who started the concept usually started it for passion, you know, they, for, for, you know, like a really good reason and it's a good concept, but then all of a sudden you start to, you know, bring in, a bunch of franchisees and franchise fees. And now the royalties are growing like crazy. The founders get on the cover of magazines, the private equity companies are starting to chase them. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, they're different. And so that's, that's something that over the years we've had, you know, it's been, it's been tough trying to figure out how to, how to keep a, a brand on track. That was actually the brand I met last night in Austin. It was a conversation that we had with all their partners. It's just a little concept. They just took private equity. And, you know, you never know if the private equity is after the same thing as the founders. And at some point, if they're not, there's going to be tension and there's going to be a disconnect uh, along the way. But it's, you know, it's uh, a lot of times like I can look at a concept and in the Middle East case, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. Billion and a half Muslims, there's no brand. Then halal food, five years ago, nobody knew what halal uh, meant. Most, I mean, most mainstream people didn't know what that means. Uh, and, and now it's, you know, now it's a widely used industry term. It's a standard of quality. You just see it more and more and more. But I, I saw it, you know, I was a, we opened 50 different uh restaurants of ours in the Middle East. And every time I'd go over there, I'd eat the street food. And it was the concepts over there that, 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 that they had in the Middle East, frankly, were better than the brands that they were franchising from America. The food was delicious. Like they made good burger concepts and good, and, and even their own Arabic street food concept were just delicious. And, you know, it just took somebody, you just had to package that brand the right way and it would work. And so I've been very fortunate with the halal guys those that 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 partnerships worked out perfectly because you know they're just relentlessly focused on the plate of food and making sure that customers get it exactly right every single time they care a lot about their franchisees um, versus some of my franchisors well and back to the hologas they're they're they they're they're sort of unfazed as we bring in franchisees that have high net worths or talk about doing million stores. They're just not phased by that. They really on the interview process, on the um, the whole entire courting and process and scrutinization process, all they're doing is trying to get to the bottom of who's going to run our restaurants and how how do we know that you're going to run them right every single day, and and that's very different than a lot of brands that I see. I had spoken with Halal guys a few weeks ago, and they had mentioned that there were other franchise opportunities that had come along. 
Um, but they didn't feel it was a good fit until they met you because you aligned with their values. Um, and, you know, why do you feel other partners choose you? Um, I, I don't know. It's a good question. And I haven't gotten all the brands that I've ever wanted to work with. But, you know, there's something about working with with us like we're not like a lot of consultants who need to get paid. Like we don't need to get paid by the hour, or by the week or by the project. We look at a concept and we say we want to help you grow this concept into a successful brand, worldwide brand, national brand. We know all kinds of stuff from our 30 years. We've learned so many things from doing things right. And obviously we've done a lot of things wrong. And, you know, we've got our best known way. We call it the France Smart Way. And it's just this, if you imagine like a chain, right? Like a chain's got all these different links in it. We have every link in the chain to us is our best known way to do everything. And, um, and we, we give it to our brands for free. So the best known way, the best practices, how to improve food costs, labor costs, how to drive sales. When I, like with my brands, like with Halal Guys, like we help them find most of their team. Like when we first started growing, we helped them find most of their uh, directors of operations, their COO. We don't charge a penny for that stuff. And so, you know, we're really fully aligned with our brand in all ways. And um, and we don't charge anything up front. So we can grow a brand really big, really fast. We've, we can do it with good experienced franchise groups. We can lend really valuable advice and insight at every step of the way. And we only get paid on success. So we there's sort of like no risk when you go with us because we've got a track record and you know there's there there's a little risk that that we know what we're doing, but there's no financial risk where a lot of consultants, you know, you pay them whether or not they actually produce any value. And in our case, we only get we only get paid on production of value. So if I had a concept that I thought, you know, was franchisable, um, what what is some advice that you would give me that of things I need to have in place to kind of embark on that journey? Well, I mean, some of the things that I look for, so like, like I said, I'm in Austin looking at a brand right now. And, you know, obviously you got to, you have to look at the numbers, you know, do customers like the concept? And the only way you really know is if depending on the sales, you know, people vote with their wallets and if the places aren't busy, that means that people, you know, people don't like it. But assuming that the number that that the sales are good, how do the rest of the unit economics look? What's it cost to open? What do they do in sales? What sort of a four wall profit margin can a franchisee make? And is there enough profit there that the franchisee is going to want to keep reinvesting his profit into opening up more locations? And so, you know, that that is that is like one of the first things that we look at. And the second thing that we look at is, is there room for this concept? Does the world need this concept? Is it unique and special and different? Are landlords going to make room in the best projects for this particular brand? You know, like right now is not the right time to go grow another fast food burger brand because there's too many of them or fast food, you know, like saying that you have a better Chipotle, like there's already a Chipotle everywhere and they have good credit. You're not going to get rid of Chipotle or saying that you have a new something better than Starbucks. It's like, those are not the brands, but if you've got something that really could grow to 500 or so units. So the ideal franchise business for a franchisor is where you have, you know, more than like 500 franchise units with only 
like less than 50 franchisees because of the profit that, I mean, it means if you've got a lot of big franchisees, it means that they're succeeding in a massive way. So they're highly focused on your business, but it's also for you, you've got leverage and scale, which is really the beauty of franchising is that if you've got, you know, a franchisee in a market paying you 10 royalty payments, and you only send one person on the airplane to go see that person, you're getting a lot of leverage and you're going to get a lot of scale versus if you, you know, if you have a hundred franchisees and uh, with a hundred, you know, if you have a uh, hundred franchisees with, with one unit each, that's like being in quicksand. It's like, you know, it's just a terrible uh, franchise. It won't ever make money and you're just never going to have fun and nobody is ever going to want to buy that brand. So the concept's got to be able to grow, you know, um, can it, can it, you know, can it grow? Do the unit economics work? Is there something unique and different and proprietary about the brand? So it could be the brand itself. It could be a product line. Is there some something unique about a flavor profile or the the the, the distribution part or you know whatever? Like, well, I'll tell you about Taffers in a second. But um, you know, is and so but we like we want to know that. Hey, can we take a concept from a couple units to a couple hundred units? And will somebody want to buy that from us? And so then there's a whole bunch of sort of derivative questions that you ask um, from that. Uh, but, um, you know, I think having manuals and systems and procedures, certainly they're important. When I met the when I met five guys, they didn't even have a point of sale system. They used cash registers and the halal guys, you know, they had carts and they didn't even have cash registers. They just broke everything in even dollars on the, uh, you know, on the carts. And it's like, but what they had is they had a long line. Both of those concepts had long lines. And so to me, the more important part is if customers love your concept, if they love it and they, they keep coming back, you know, like five guys never marketed, halal guys never marketed. And, but yet they still have these long lines. Like that tells you something about the brand. And then I'm like, gosh, what if I layer marketing on top of that? It's just going to make it even better, which it, which it did. And you mentioned that you're working with John Taffer on Taffer's Tavern, Taverns, um, which is opening during the pandemic. Um, and what is it about that concept um, that attracted you to it? John, John reached out and he said, I want to do something new in the restaurant business. I want to come up with a chain. I want to do something that hasn't been done before. And what he described and what I already knew is that casual dining has taken a beating in the last decade, like even long before COVID. I mean, just, you know, people don't go to Fridays or Chili's or anything like that the way that they did. And they're just, there was all this money being poured into fast casual and even QSR, but not so much money chasing casual dining. And so we thought that the ca like the whole casual dining bar tavern business, nobody did anything new in that space nationally in over a decade. And he was smart about it. He said, you know, there's so much technology in food nowadays, like, you know, really we, you know, there, there's, there's just no reason to build restaurants as big as they used to be, or as expensive as they used to be. And frankly, there's no reason to have all the moving parts that you need to have in a restaurant. Most of the fast casual guys have already figured this out, but in the full service, John teamed up with a company called Cuisine Solutions. They're the largest supplier of sous vide in the world, um, sous vide cooking in the world, and they've built the entire menu. It's all chef driven. Some of the items are celebrity chef driven. 
but all unique sauces and meats and everything, everything comes in um, sous vide. So it's cooked perfectly 100% of the time. And it's a smart kitchen. So he was using this term smart kitchen a year ago. Uh, and then, and, and then Taffer safe dining was always going to be his, his thing, even before, before COVID, he says, I don't want raw food in this restaurant. I don't want people having a chance to get, you know, having cross contamination. You know, I want the food to be perfect every single time. How do we build restaurants that do more volume with fewer people, fewer employees? How do we build restaurants that do more volume in smaller spaces? And, and then also he designed this to be off premise sales. Um, focused and so not only and which which has really been the death knell for so many of these full service restaurants during COVID is that you know think about it a year ago most of these full service restaurant celebrity chefs were so snobbish and they're like I'm not doing off premise I'm not doing delivery I'm not doing carry out you can't protect the integrity of our food yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and those are the first ones to go during COVID. And so the ones that have been able to be successful and have pivoted like Cheesecake Factory, for example, I mean, they just got wise and they got, they got smart about doing off-premise dining. And you, now, you know, now you make that another revenue center. You're, you're adding a whole other revenue center on top of your existing investment and your existing employees. And that's how you drive profit. And John came up with that a year ago. So he had this idea for, you know, tap for safe dining and, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, hoodless, ventless, like you think about that, like I'm looking at a high rise building right now in downtown Austin, and th that that's just being built a restaurant that's going in the bottom has to figure out how to put ventilation, they call it black iron, up through the entire building. So somebody's got to create a shaft that goes up, you know, either uh, it's expensive, it's ridiculous. And so, you know, john's like, let's go build these really high volume tavern restaurants, but that they're just not going to need the same number of employees and they're not going to need the same size kitchen. And everyone's meal is going to be perfect every single time because of the smart kitchen. So they're using like, you know, the, just the products that they're using, but you know, everything is remote controlled. Everything is the right, perfect time and temperature every single time on, on, uh, on every item. So it's, it's smart and it, uh, yeah, it opens up in like three weeks in Atlanta. And I would imagine that because the concept is, you know, forward thinking of things we didn't even, weren't even going through at the time, um, are you actively seeing a lot of interest um, from uh, potential franchisees? Yeah. So we, uh, like, like what happens a lot of time with us is we sell franchises. A lot of our franchisees own multiple brands of ours. And so the Atlanta Taffer's Tavern franchisee, was already a franchisee of one of my other brands, Curry Up Now. So the fact it's, you know, we have this brand Curry Up Now. I had the same thought about uh, uh, India. No one was doing Indian either. And so we made a national chain, we're uh, growing national chain, but our, our Atlanta Curry Up franchisee has four Curry Up Nows open. Now he signed up for Taffers. Uh, a former Five Guys franchisee is my franchisee in Boston. Um, Cuisine Solutions, the, the, the sous vide company, is our franchise partner in uh, Washington, D.C. And we're about to do a deal in New York and another deal in Dallas. And, and these are all people that are already in our uh, ecosystem. So, If I was interested in becoming a franchisee, um, what kind of advice would you give me to identify a viable brand? I would I would look for a concept that that you're passionate about, 
right? Because you have to you have to be proud and you have to like what you're doing. Um, I would pick a concept that had great unit economics. And I, w- I like concepts that are still young and early. I think that there's attraction of being a big fish in a little pond. Um, and you want, sometimes when you get into a brand early, you can make better deals. So like, you know, in five guys or halal guys, people were getting much bigger territories than they were originally signing up for. And why that's important is if you're, if you have a concept that's good and it has really good unit economics and you have a really good ROI, like I think a a franchisee in this market, nobody should buy a franchise unless they're convinced they're going to get at least a 30 or 40% ROI, you know, get your money back in two and a half to three years max. Ideally you want like a 50% plus ROI. And the reason is, is that you want to make so much profit out of that business that you just say, shoot, I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm going to take this profit, and just keep opening these things. This is a lever. Every time I pull it, I'm getting really terrific returns on my money because opening a restaurant is risky, right? It's not like, it's not like putting the money in the market or buying a piece of real estate or something like that. It's risky. So the rewards have to be there. I would look at a concept with really good unit economics. I would find a, a territory, a concept where I could get a big enough territory and I would think about that. I would think about I build a financial model for yourself where you build the first store, you know, you pay the money to open up a ter- or to buy a territory, you pay the money to open up your first location. The second location, you know, you might put in two thirds of the cash because you've got some some profit that that you're able to roll over. But then your third unit, you might only put up a third of the cash because now you've got profit from the first two stores. And then after you've got three stores, you're, you it may, you know might be four stores, but you get to that point where you can now self-fund your growth. Then you're going to wish that you had a long runway. And so you're going to wish that you had the ability to go build another five or 10 or 20 stores to not only get a much bigger um, cash stream every month from your business, but you want to be able to sell your business, right? That's another attraction of going with a brand that's early is, you know, back when we we were Five Guys franchisees too. And when we sold our franchise, we sold back to Five Guys for six times profit. And that's a premium, right? So that's a premium. And today, I think Five Guys are selling for sort of three or four times. And so we got nearly double the multiple. Um, and that, that, that was even at a time when the sales were even higher. So you know, sort of pick a brand you're passionate about, great unit economics. I think you got to get a territory that's big enough where you can get to the point your business generates enough profit to self-fund three, four, five times bigger than you originally were thinking about and still sell it while it's at the peak. Build your business so you can still sell it at the peak. You don't have to, but at least you have the option of doing that. And then you know, it's important. Do you like the owners? Are you kind of congruent with the owners and their vision and what they find is important? Um, you know, do you get along with the people? Uh, I would build, I would really invest in the right team. Like to me, if I were building a restaurant chain today, a franchise today, I, w- I wouldn't only just hire a manager. Like if I signed up for five or 10 units, I wouldn't just hire a manager. I would hire a really experienced director of ops who's opened up at least four or five new restaurants. Cause when restaurants first open, they, they, they're, they go haywire. Like all the mistakes happen in a restaurant, right? When it opens. And so you want someone who's been through that. They've already been through that and they're okay. And they kind of thrive in that kind of chaos. You want a couple general, you want a general manager who's opened up at least two or three restaurants. You want a kitchen manager who's opened up at least two or three restaurants. And so that's a, that's a heavy team on the front end. But from my experience with five guys and, 
Qdoba and Halal guys, the franchisees who do that tend to do almost double the sales of the of the other franchisees. And so without without giving away info I'm not supposed to, I can just tell you, like I know franchisees who staffed, you know, with the right director of ops, GM and a KM in the beginning, their sales opened up to double. And so, you know, when you're doing that kind of sales, not only does it more than pay for that extra people, but um uh, you know, it, it just sort of each guest that comes in is going to get a better experience. And so not financially it works, but then also operationally, you're trying to endear yourself to that market. And people are funny if they come into your restaurant 10 times and, and get a perfect experience, they're supposed to. So they don't say anything. They only say something when it's, you know, the one time when it didn't work. And so if you're trying to build a brand in a new market, you really need to, to put the extra energy into getting the right, you know, getting the right team. So you recently decided to explore non-food franchising concepts. Um, why did you decide to do that now? Um, and you know, what kind of brands are you eyeing? So it started because we have over a hundred thousand people in our database. Um, and our database is, you know, we 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 bought we keep buying the names of every franchisee that that we want for the brands that we want, plus any form of marketing that we ever do that drives any interest to our, our ecosystem goes into our database. So we have a huge database. About 30% of those people have between 50 grand and $150,000 to invest. And those folks, it, you know, let's just say they have 100,000 on average. That's not enough to get into a multi-unit restaurant franchise. It's just not. And somebody's going to get into trouble because they're going to, they're just going to get into a cash crunch. So we started to look for some non-food brands that had lower startup costs. And at first I was actually thinking, let me go find some cheap brands to own <clears throat> that are probably lower ticket and the guy's going to make less money, but at least we can do something with all these leads. And so I reached out to a franchise attorney that a lot of our brands use, Harold Kestenbaum. And I just said, Harold, do you have any brands, any non-food brands that we ought to take a look at at approaching to see if either they need a capital partner or they want help franchising? And he says, yeah. And he starts sending me over the offering circulars of a couple different brands. First thing I do is turn to item 19, which is the only way a brand's allowed to disclose financial numbers. And I look at this concept called Golden Hearts. It's a senior care. And at first I was thinking, there's a lot of these companies out there. Like what's, you know, but I went to the startup cost section and I saw that the average franchisee was spending, you know, like kind of under $100,000 to open, including franchise fee. And the average franchisee is making over a million dollars in sales and making a quarter of a million dollars in profit. And so, and then, and, and I'm just thinking about this and I'm going, wait a minute. And I, so I called a couple of the franchisees. I actually went to Scottsdale and play golf with one of the franchisees. These guys are super happy. They were you know, really kind of gregarious and excited about their business. They absolutely felt like they owned the Golden Heart franchise in the Scottsdale Metro, which is a great market for that uh, for that business. But, you know, and they made they, they made a lot of money. And I started to think about it's like, gosh, I mean, I don't have any of my brands that you could make 250 a year on under a hundred thousand dollar investment. And so I started looking into more. Then we got a company um, called Paymore and Paymore at first, when I looked at it, I just looked at it because he sent me the offering circle. And the first thing I zeroed in on was his numbers is Paymore is this thousand square foot place where they, they buy, sell and trade new and used electronics and gaming. And so it's basically a place. If you break your 
your iPhone, they'll fix it or they'll they'll take a trade in on the spot, give you a new one, then they move all your data over and wipe that wipe it out. It's and they do the same kind of stuff with gaming. And I'm like, okay, how good can this business be? And you know, the thing costs under a hundred thousand dollars to open and it's doing over two million dollars in sales and making over a half a million dollars in profit. And then then it just started to dawn on me that you know, there's, there are a lot, as, as I started research, there's a lot of franchisees making a ton of money in non-food franchising, but it's the same business. It's still the same business of systems is that these brands had good concepts. They had happy, referenceable franchisees that, that, that could tell me if I did, if you follow the system, it's going to work. You're going to make a lot of money. And now these two brands are like, they're number three and four in our portfolio for the brands with the most leads. So you also have the Kitchen Fund and Fran Invest, and can you kind of um, explain a little bit about what they are and you know what you look for in an investment opportunity? Well, it started with Fran Invest, like Fran Smart, Fran Invest. We were just going to put together a pool of money to do highly structured angel uh, uh, investments, and so small investments, quarter of a million dollars half a million dollars kind of investments, but they were going to be structured and they were going to be rigid and they were going to have board premise and stuff like that. Usually angel investing is just friends and family and they just throw money in a pot. We wanted to do it more like a private equity group really is the prelude to whether or not we wanted to open up a fund. And we made some great investments. We made some really good investments and um, including sweet green and Kaba concepts that don't even franchise. They're just, it's just our, our, our um, focus of always trying to find the next big thing early. Uh, we got in front of both of those brands and invested in those brands um, early. That went well enough that we started Kitchen Fund. So Kitchen Fund is a, a joint venture between Fran Smart and a guy named Greg Golkin, who's from Goldman Sachs and Wharton, little mini genius. And um, we raised we raised a fund and we put it to work and we did some amazing investments, including, do you know, um, do you know by Chloe? By Chloe? Yeah. So we were we were in early and by Chloe and, you know, we got in again in another round in, in uh, uh, Kaba and Sweetgreen and made a whole bunch of really good investments. And then that went well enough that we opened up our second fund, Kitchen Fund. And uh, Kitchen Fund 2. So the Kitchen Fund 2. So we just we just closed the Kitchen Fund 2 uh, late last year. But, you know, kind of looking for the next big thing in the restaurant business as early as we can get it. Because, you know, we're okay. We're okay if it's early because we know how to coach and mentor a concept. Really, really, we know what to look for. But then we also, you know, we know how to coach and mentor a concept um, to scale. So we feel like we feel like we're value add investors at the whole spectrum, you know, so not 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 just, uh, you know, at any one point in time, like we understand how to find the right brands, we can coach them and then we understand how to have a successful exit. So how has the pandemic affected what you look for in that next best thing? Um, and how do you see it affecting the franchise landscape moving forward? Well, it's so as sad as COVID is, and a lot of people are really struggling, and uh, but it's a tremendous opportunity because you, you've still got the same number of people who live in any market, but there's now a third less restaurants feeding those people because of all the closures. And they might, might be half, like as many as half of the restaurants could go away. And so it creates a huge opportunity that, you know, now you've got this, you know, a year ago, people, the restaurant 
guys were all complaining. It's like, I can't find locations. And if I can find them, I can't afford them. Or I can't find people. I can't find good people. And if I can, I can't afford those guys either. Well, both of those things completely got turned on their head during COVID. And so now, you know, there's tons of A plus locations that are available that you can even do a conversion, which kind of lowers your startup cost to convert something from a you know burger shop to a burrito shop. It's, you know, the mechanical electrical plumbing is already there, you know, just and it allow it kind of helps you juice your ROI, which you need right now because of COVID, people are nervous. And so there has to be something so good about the um, return that it makes people still want to invest even in this market. And so that's one of the things for us is that we, we look at brands who've been able to pivot during this time. We look for brands that still have um, high sales. So like the Halal Guy sales, they're, they're strong during, uh, I mean, they've been strong the whole time, but we have some franchisees that are up more than 20%. I have five guys franchisees that I stay in touch with. And they say, they say as a chain, there are all their stores are up. And then you see all these stories about the drive-through guys and the pizza guys. And so there are people in this market that are thriving. And so that, that answers the other part of your question is like, we also look at a brand because if I, if I'm going to write a check into a concept, if I'm going to invest in a concept, I want to know that I'm investing into a management team that will figure things out no matter how hard the puzzle is. And this has been a tr tricky puzzle to, to solve, but we just, you know, this, this market is going to weed out a lot of concepts and there's a lot of concepts that have raised a lot of private equity already who are still open and operating because they're still sucking down their, all the private equity that they have. Those are going to, there's going to be a whole other group of, of chain closures, you know, uh, independent and, and uh, larger chain uh, uh, closures here pretty, you know, pretty soon. And so we look at that as a big opportunity. Obviously, technology has played a huge role in helping restaurants um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, how have you seen that play, uh, play out, um, you know, some, maybe some examples um, and do you see that being, you know, a huge uh, factor in the future, um, you know, with adding AI and robotics and these things that we thought were years off? Do you see them uh, being playing more of a role in in, say, within the next two, three years? I absolutely what it's done is it took the curb, whatever the normal uh, cycle time was, and it sped everything up by 10 times. And so, you know, I think about like my parents, my parents never ordered food online, you know, and now they do it every week. And, you know, just the, 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 the that demand has shifted restaurants uh, in a big way. And, but, you know, technology is, is important. It just depends on what you want technology for. Like there's very, very, very good technologies to drive um, sales, right? So, you know, to drive revenue, there's really good technologies to control costs, to kind of, you know, manage infrastructure, manage logistics, you know, reduce labor. There's, it, it just depends how people, um, you know, how, how people are going to use the technology. But I think, I think especially like the things that, that, that you've seen most people talk about recently, which is like the off-premise dining and stuff like that, that's, that's absolutely pervasive. It's not going to go away when COVID goes away. It's, it's just a sign of the future. Um, you know, one of the other things that we touched on a little bit with uh, Taffer's Tavern um, is, you know, virtual kitchens, ghost kitchens, and maybe brands working under the same roof. Um, is is that a factor that you see will become more important 
um, and something that um, potential franchisers should be aware of? I think that they should be aware of it and they should be careful of it because sort of like a lot of things, a lot of things are good ideas, but then too many people do it and, and it kind of spoils it. So look at, remember food halls? <laughs> food, food, food halls weren't that long ago and like you're seeing those it was a great idea. And then all of a sudden there's just too many of them. They don't differentiate themselves and a lot of them are struggling or, you know, or like, like, like a lot of things. But I think, I mean, I, I think that the idea of the ghost kitchen is a good idea. It originally was there. Um, I mean, I guess you, you just have to, you know, it, it was originally there's a way because a lot of restaurants weren't built for, they weren't engineered for off premise. They, they just weren't, it wasn't their core business. And so their, the original thesis of these guys is we're engineering this thing specifically for that. And it's going to, you know, have all these efficiencies and it's going to work. And then what, what, what you're starting to see is a lot of these ghost kitchens starting to create their own brands. And so they started off where they had a lot of branded concepts and then they started to do their own concepts because you know which i think is 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 a i think that's what's going to happen too is you're going to see a lot of these ghost kitchens starting to create the brand around the ghost kitchen instead of creating a brand around the brands you know like a halal guys is in kitchen united and that's great but you know you, you you're going to start seeing some of these ghost kitchen guys start to do their own version of that like their own version of five guys, their own version of halal guys. And I think those guys are going to fall flat on their face. I don't, I, I worry for a brand to jump too hard, too fast into that world before you really know how it's going to play out because there's so much private equity chasing that space and artificially propping up brands and artificially offering marketing money and all this other kind of stuff. It's just a kind of a bizarre time. I still think a brand, what it should do is the brand should focus on the brand and making the brand perfect, making the brand guest experience outstanding, trying to build the right retail uh, footprint. So I, I absolutely believe that, that you should still be going after the busiest mass gathering areas of the top 50 media markets you know, in North America, but add that engineer your restaurants, optimize them for off-premise like engineer these things to have a strong, like, like you see Chipotle doing with their, you know, it's not a drive through. It's sort of a drive away lane or whatever it is. It's like, you do stuff like that on your concept and you just think differently. And then all of a sudden concept pe people that want your concept are only ever going to buy it from you. And, you know, you're already seeing the trend with all these third party delivery and all these apps, like their, 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 their costs will start to get neutralized. They're going to come down. And then there's also so much technology now where, brands can do more of their own delivery or more of their own uh, carry out or components of it and reduce their costs. So, you know, to me, I would be careful. I think that there's, I just see every day we get emails from, you know, I get emails from these sales guys that are with different ghost kitchens and every like 90 days, they seem to be at a different ghost kitchen because whatever they're working on is wherever they were working just didn't work out. So I think you got to be careful of that and just focus on the brand, you know, like, like a five guys, it's like, Focus on, you know, like how you, there's just still so much room to grow concept like five guys. And then to do your doing your own off premise and delivery, um, you know, delivery, catering, carry out, all that kind of stuff. Like there's just so much opportunity in that. And then, yeah, look at the look at the third party ghost uh, kitchens. But just I just think you have to be careful. Like the volumes are surprisingly low from from my experience when a brand goes into one of these ghost kitchens, the sales are a lot lower than you think that they would be. And in hindsight, it's like, I mean, is it really worth it? So, but you know, one, one is uh, one, one, have you ever heard of Wow Bao? 
Mm-hmm. So wow, bad jet. I think he's sharp as it gets. He's created a concept where he's actually selling a wow bow kit that somebody can put in their restaurant if they have excess capacity for if they have excess capacity for um, in their restaurant and they want another revenue center. You know, let let's say that they're I don't know a burger restaurant or something like that or Mexican restaurant and they want to create this as a secondary concept that still leverages the same structure. He's made it brainlessly easy um, for somebody to do that. So that to me is smart, but it's, you know, and it's serving a purpose for the operators who, who license the concept because they get an extra revenue center on top of a fixed um, uh, overhead. But, and it's good for him too, because he keeps getting brand awareness grown all around the country. So there, there are cases where it works. It's just, I think that there's for every, for every Jeff Alexander, uh, you're going to get you know, six people that aren't, that aren't Jeff. Last question. Um, you sound very enthusiastic and optimistic. Um, so are you excited about the future of the restaurant industry and, you know, and what excites you about it? I'm salivating. Like I'm the most excited about this business. I've been at it for 30 years and I'm the most excited about it now as I've ever been. Um, I just, you know, it just feels like, like it's just a, you know, everything, the economy goes in cycles and we obviously hit a, hit the skids the last several months. And I think that, I think we're going to go on a run for the next seven to 10 years. And I think we've got our eyes on some really, really, really good brands. We understand the game better than we've ever understood it. Uh, And we're, we're completely automating and digitizing our franchise marketing and sales process. So literally fran- people that want to work with us are going to wind up going through most of that process virtually. And then most of the people that want um, to buy a franchise are going to be able to go through most of that journey virtually. And it's just a way that we're, 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 we're leveraging a lot of technology for ourselves just to give fran- you know, to let franchisees kind of do their research, look into it, not only, not only see the brochure, or the marketing side of our brands, but also like to have meaningful interviews with the franchisees that'll, that'll show you what it takes to succeed at their level. And then also give a warning to people if they're not the right fit and, you know, but just, you know, it's tools for financial modeling, you know, tools for, um, you know, really coaching the franchisees, how to do it successful from the, from the get go. And in a way that that used to be traditionally has been very manual. Now it's going to be a lot, very automated. And I just I feel for us, we're going to sell more franchises than we've ever sold. I think they're going to be more successful than we've ever been. Um, and I'm excited. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.